Well, tonight we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Be reading from the English Standard Version. We found this on page 1015 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So one of the classic Hollywood uh, wells that they like to dip into for movie ideas is the personal vengeance film. And they just sell. doesn't matter how long ago you can go back to, um, you know, Righteous Kill back, I think it was in the 70s, or you could go back to um, the the movies that are coming out even today. I mean, one of the most famous uh, and and popular franchises was born out of a movie uh, basically uh, about a guy killing probably in the triple digits of henchmen uh, because they had beat him up and killed his dog. And the whole movie is all about him just going and killing everyone involved with it. All right? so, it, it, so there are times, there's just something that strikes in us that we like vengeance. There's something in us. And there are times where we are tempted as believers to justify acting sinfully. Particularly if it involves someone who has done wrong to us. Now last week we talked about Christian conduct. And Peter is addressing the question of how Christians live in a pagan and hostile world. And Peter is talking to a group of Christians in northern Turkey who have been mistreated and persecuted for their faith in Christ. And as the church, they may well be wondering how they should respond to this mistreatment that they have received. And in this text, Peter teaches us particularly not to take personal vengeance upon those who have done wrong to us because, primarily, we belong to Christ. So we'll look at that tonight. So first we begin in verses 18 and 20, where Peter teaches us not to take vengeance on our superiors, even if they wrong us. And I use superior in that tactical sense of those who have authority and power over us. But we really need to get our bearings on this text, because a text like this is fraught with misunderstanding. This is because the Greek here, this Greek word here, doulos, means servant and slave, and they're roughly interchangeable in in the New Testament in in the Greek context. They don't usually make the real 
you know, the, 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 the nuanced splitting that we do today with it. And this is complicated because when, whenever a modern Western audience reads the word slave or even servant, uh, we tend to think of the antebellum chattel slavery uh, in the South from the 1800s. And, and so uh, now we can stand here today and, and absolutely condemn slavery, that, especially that slavery as an evil institution that should never have happened. And we're thankful that it's gone. Uh, and we and and. Sh- but, but there are many who will read Peter's words here and they'll accuse Peter of affirming slavery of all kinds, of every stripe, because he's telling slaves that they shouldn't do anything about the injustice that they're experiencing. That for the sake of God, they should just bear it and just, you know, with a smile as best they can. But what I'm actually going to contend here is that Peter is not saying anything about the institution of slavery, let alone the modern, more kind of modernized concepts of it, but even the institution of slavery as it was in, uh, the, in the empire of Rome at the time. And so who is Peter talking about when he says slaves or servants? Well, we need to understand that slavery or servitude, uh, that meant it, it was taking place in the Roman Empire, and, and servants that Peter is addressing here, basically across the board, you read scholars on this who've researched how slavery worked, but it's basically thought that Peter is, would be speaking to domestic servants, uh, people who served in the homes uh, um, of their masters. Now, these were often educated uh, and uh, they would serve uh, in various roles. They would be teachers, doctors, musicians, or, or secretaries, administrative assistants. And they were paid a wage, and they could purchase their freedom if they could, if they could get the money. Their treatment is also regulated by Roman law, yet we also have to uh, acknowledge that the actual conditions and treatments of slaves uh, varied widely, uh, and they were not considered people. They were considered to be property. They were considered to be things in Roman society. And, and now the way you entered into slavery was not through race, as is often modern audiences think of slavery, but it was either, or there were usually generally three options. You were taken prisoner in a war, you were, um, you were in debt, and so you sold yourself to, to pay off your debt, uh, or you were born to, uh, to a slave or to a servant, and so you were born into it. Uh, and so, now saying it's not based on race is, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it better, but it just makes it, there is a difference, and we need to be clear about that. Now, one thing people often miss here is that Peter is addressing slaves at all in his letter. Now, remember that many of these people that he's writing to are coming from a Gentile or Greco-Roman background. And Greco-Roman writings did not address slaves or servants as people. Because remember, they're things. They did not address them as free moral agents who can make decisions because they were property. The famous Greek philosopher Aristotle argued that slaves weren't people. They were workhorses. And they should be treated like cattle. And so even by writing to servants and addressing them personally, Peter is undermining Roman culture because he is at elevating them to be, have the same moral agency as a freeman. Now part of Peter's motivation here uh, seems to be twofold. 
First, Peter's motivation in addressing servants here, Christian servants, it generally has to do with this thing that, uh, this ancient thing called household codes. You know, in modern day, we say, well, what happens in your household is most, by and large, your business. Roman society did not say that. They said what happens in your household is basically everybody's business. All right? It matters how that your, that your house is being run in accordance with to Roman values. And so Roman society would judge foreigners and new religions based on how they adhered to Romans, uh, the Roman society's uh, uh, views on how men, women, and children and their servants were to act. And, and so, uh, you know, if a religion comes along and starts elevating the status of servants by addressing them as people and giving them decisions to make, and, and uh, you know, and these servants live in Roman households, well, guess who starts to get a little nervous, All right? Because slaves made up a quarter of the Roman Empire. And one of the things that the Romans were terrified about were slave revolts. And so, you know, know, does anybody remember the movie I Am Spartacus or that line, you know, Spartacus? Right. Well, that was about a Roman slave revolt. There was a guy named Spartacus and that was highly stylized, but yeah, he died. All right. Any slave revolts that were never successful in Roman society, they were put down. They were bloody massacres. Um, But because the Romans were terrified. So if any slaves rose up, they were gone. They were killed, tortured in how they were executed. It was pretty terrible. And so part of why Peter is addressing Christian servants here is on the one hand to, to quell any fears that outsiders may have that Christians are seeking to destroy the Romans' way of life and to do harm to them. But on the other hand, Peter is also speaking to people who have the least amount of power in society. Peter is not writing to Christians who are living in a Christian society or even a truly democratic one. Rome was lightly democratic because only certain people could vote, and it certainly wasn't Christian slaves. Christians have no political power to exert any change on any level. And so how should these powerless Christians conduct themselves as believers in a pagan household where you can't change your situation and you were even expected to worship the gods that the head of the house worshipped? And if you didn't and something bad happened, guess who gets the blame? The Christians, because they're being Roman atheists, because they're not believing in the gods. And so now, and so the Christians had, they're living on a knife's edge. And so by addressing those with the least amount of power, Peter is also addressing everyone in the church as well. Because, it, because if it applies to these servants, to these slaves who are living and, and serving in pagan Roman households, then it certainly would apply to every other Christian that is under authority. So that kind of helps us to get our bearings on how to think about uh, the, the slavery and the servants that, that, that Peter is writing to. That Peter is not writing to them just to go, oh, well, slavery is a great thing and you should just subject to your, you know, you just subject to your masters because slavery is awesome and wonderful. Right. That's not what Peter is doing. But Peter does tell these servants, he does tell the Christian church to always honor God wherever you are. To honor God wherever you are by submitting yourself to the authority that is over you. And so Peter, uh, and so again, Peter is applying this to the, the people who have the least amount of power to change their circumstances. And that's important to consider. Because while Peter is not giving, uh, he's not, you know, he's not giving approval 
to the institution of slavery. He's not saying that they should just go with it because this is their lot in life. That's actually a pagan view that says, you know, well, these guys are servants. These guys are slaves because it's the will of the gods to have them in this place. And so this is right that they're servants and slaves and that I'm the master, right? That's a pagan way to, you know. And so what do you tell people then to Christian servants who have no ability to change their circumstances? And especially if they're living with abusive masters and they're not considered as people, they're considered property. What do you tell them? How do you instruct them? How do you counsel them? And so Peter says that they ought to respect those in authority over them. This applies to those who not only have good and gentle masters, but also those who have unjust masters. And he gives us two reasons. And the first one comes in verse 19. First, he says, look, if you're doing something wrong and you get punished for it, if you get beaten for it, well, then there's no credit for you for suffering for doing wrong. You know, if you, if you get thrown in prison because you robbed a bank, there's, like, there's nothing there like God's like, good job. You know, like that's not what's going to happen. There's nothing to your credit for doing that. But if you do good and you suffer for it, then he says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And that's an odd phrase, a gracious thing. What is what is that gracious thing? There's debate over what that phrase means, and but everyone agrees that you know suffering itself is not the gracious thing. It's not gracious just to suffer for the sake of suffering. But what I understand this to mean is that he's saying, look, if you suffer for doing good, if you endure sorrows because you did something good, and you are enduring that, then God looks upon that as something worthy of reward. That is something that is worthy of credit to you. Because remember he said it's no credit to you if you get punished for doing evil. But if you get punished for doing good and you endure, well then that actually is to your credit. It is something that God is, say, that is saying that God would reward you for. And so, and so now Peter is not saying it's wrong to object to mistreatment. But notice how his argument focuses on the conduct of the servant. That it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He will actually say that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, Peter's point here is not about the institution of slavery. What Peter is saying here is that a Christian's personal conduct is not determined by how others in authority treat them. I do not determine whether or not I'm going to sin against you by whether or not you sin against me. That's the point. We don't use the misconduct of others to justify our own sin. As one scholar wrote in the passage, she said, Action against injustice and unjust structures does not require personal retaliation. I mean, go read the Old Testament law. There's all kinds of laws and punishments and all kinds of stuff that go to, that go to punish the wrongdoer. But to whom does vengeance belong? The Lord. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Don't you take it personally. Don't you go and say, you, no, vengeance belongs to me. I will judge. And so Peter is dignifying his audience here, these servants, these slaves, as he addresses them as people and not cattle. He, he, he addresses them as Christians who, who have personal agency, who can make choices as those who belong to a holy nation, who are members of a holy priesthood, who belong to God. Remember, they just read, 
right? 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2. These, he's addressing them as believers who are saved by the resurrection of Jesus, who have an eternal inheritance that their God, that their Father in heaven will give to them. And so he's saying, based on who you truly are in Christ, he says, do not allow the injustice you experience to creep into your soul and cause you to commit sin against God and others. Look, if you can get your freedom, go, go do it. Paul says that elsewhere. Absolutely. But if you can't, and you suffer for doing good, then know that God will reward you. He has not abandoned you. But how does one do this? Well, Peter hints at it in verse 19, where he says, by being mindful of God, that if you, that, that if you do good while enduring sorrows or suffering, while being mindful of God, he talks about that phrase there. Now, and so one scholar defined this as this trusting awareness of God's presence and never failing care. That, that while you're suffering, to be aware that God is with you and has not abandoned and, and And to, to have this mindfulness of God, of his presence with us. And we would add an awareness of God's holiness, his commands to us that he has given to us of how to live as God's people, regardless of the conduct of others. And so how does one endure suffering while doing good? How do we get into that mindset? Well, he says you need to be mindful about God. Think about him. Think about who you are in Christ. Because this is where Peter takes it next. Because he gets real specific here on what it means to be mindful of God in verses 21 to 25. Where he gives us the true foundation of Christian conduct. So one of the oldest books in in history outside of the Bible is the Iliad by Homer. And it's pretty amazing when you think about it, because apparently Homer was blind, and so he would, you know, so so he had a, a lot of he had all the stuff up in his head, and they would go and, and he would go and essentially sing these songs um, and uh, and and these stories of the gods, and and the story is narrated about the the, the battle of Troy, and it, the story is filled with all kind of battling and blood and guts and how the Greek gods had taken sides in the war and. And, and, but the question is, why did the war start? Why, why did the Battle of Troy come about? And I'm going somewhere else. So, <laughs> um, but it goes back to a beauty contest. So, there were, uh, so the gods were attending a wedding. And, uh, and, and the goddess of strife named Eris, who had not been invited, because you don't invite the goddess of strife to your wedding. So um, well, she was a little ticked that she didn't get invited, so she showed up anyway. And she took a golden apple and wrote... Uh, to, to the you know to the fairest of the goddesses and threw it into the wedding, right? And so of course there was a big fight about who was the most beautiful of all the goddesses. And so Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite go to Zeus, the king of the gods, and they want him to decide. And he goes, "I am not getting into this. Uh, uh-uh, not even going near it. Uh, Hera's my wife, number one, and he wasn't that faithful to her. <laughs> but uh, but he's just like okay. And so they end up going to this mortal." Uh, this very handsome mortal named Paris in the city of Troy. And, uh, and each of them, each of the goddesses offer him bribes. Hera offers him power and rule. Athena offers him battle prowess and strategy. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, offers him love. Right? She offers him a woman. And, uh, and, and so Paris, being a vain man, chose, uh, chose 
love and declared Aphrodite to be the winner. And this, of course, made Hera and Artemis, or, or sorry, um, Athena, um, despise Paris. Like they, they hated his guts and all the Trojans with him. And so when war broke out over the woman, Helen, whom Aphrodite gave to, gave to Paris uh, as his reward, Helen of Troy, uh, then war broke out and everyone in Olympus is taking sides. And, uh, and so, okay, well, all that's engaging and all that's entertaining. Why are we, why are we interrupting the sermon for, you know, a discourse on, you know, summary of what's the background to the book of the Iliad? This is the stuff of Roman religion. These are their tales. If you wanted to look to a divine example, I just gave you one. These are the stories of the gods. And they don't get better. They get more sultry. They get more tawdry. They get, they get crazy. All right? Those are the gods of that society. Those were the divine examples that the Greeks and the Romans were looking to in the background. These, all these temples and all these rituals. And these, this is the religion that many of these Christians had come out of. That's the examples they had. And then Peter says, now consider Christ's example. In verses 21 to 23. Because while imaginary Greek and Roman gods were busy getting jealous of each other and messing with mortals... Peter points us to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? Peter pulls out four quotes and at least four allusions from Isaiah 53 to describe what Jesus did. First, Peter reminds us of the innocence of Jesus in word and deed. He had committed no sin against God. He had made no violation of the law. Neither did did he deceive anyone. He always spoke the truth. Secondly, he did not retaliate when they slandered him. He did not make threats when he suffered at their hands. And if there is a guy who can make threats and back them up, that is Jesus. Right? If Jesus threatens, he can do it. But rather than personally retaliating, rather than fighting fire with fire... Jesus entrusted himself to his father, knowing that he judges justly, Peter says. And Peter says in verse 21 that the example of Christ in his suffering is the example that we are called to emulate in our lives when we experience injustice. Now, uh, now it's interesting because some point to this passage, at least one of the commentaries I was reading, um, and they said, well, this is, you know, this gives us a text of reason why uh, Christians, um, you know, um, you know, shouldn't uh, protest injustice or why, uh, you know, um, or why Christians should not fight in the military. But Peter is not commenting on institutions. Again, he is addressing a Christian's personal conduct and reminding us that vengeance is the Lord's. And further, that our Savior endured suffering in his absolutely perfect innocence. If there was anyone who experienced injustice, it was Jesus. And if we belong to him, then by his example, we are called to follow it by doing good even while we suffer. Why? Because God is just and because Jesus suffered for us. 
Now some would like to leave it there and just kind of put Jesus forward as our great example to show us how to be good people. You know, Jesus came, he was a really good guy, and he got a tough rap, and he really, you know, he, he just, you know, he buckled down and was a good guy, and we should all be good guys like Jesus. And, you know, it's just, and so they want to take it to the example of Jesus, but Peter doesn't leave it in a mere example. Peter is an example for Christian conduct in suffering, obviously. Peter says it clearly. But Peter takes us from Christ's example and he takes it deeper into Christ's salvation in verses 24 and 25. He says, Jesus bore our sins on the tree, that is the cross. And there was a purpose in Jesus doing that. He did that so that you and I would die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus didn't die on the cross only to pay the penalty for our sin or only to clothe us in his righteousness. He did that. We have a word for it. We call that justification. But Jesus died on the cross not only to justify us, but also to sanctify us. He died for our sin that in our life we would die to sin on a daily basis. He covered us in his righteousness that we would live daily unto righteousness in our lives, growing in it, increasing in it daily, whether we are experiencing injustice or not. And so Peter confirms both the reality and the effect of the death of Christ for us. He says we were wounded and strained like lost sheep, like, uh, even like lost miniature horses. Wandering aimlessly in mortal danger and of no use to anyone. (laughs) But the wounds of Christ have healed us. The sacrifice of Christ has brought us back to God. So Peter here obviously isn't saying that our suffering heals people, like as if Jesus is our example. He suffered and his wounds healed us, so your wounds and your suffering would heal others. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying the foundation of Christian faithfulness when suffering, in, suffering injustice comes from Jesus himself, not only in his example, but in him, in our salvation. That our salvation was born of the wounds of the innocent Son of God. And we are thus moved also to gratitude toward God and suffering for the sake of Christ. And here is a great comfort to Christians in Peter's time. Even uh, even, uh, servants and slaves who couldn't change their lot. Or even today in America, yes, we don't have slavery. But maybe we have, you know, in America. employer-employee relations where it's really hard and you're dealing with an incredibly unjust boss, but you're, you know, the situation where you can't quit or you can't move on or whatever it is, whatever parallel you want to put it to. But here is, but here is our example when we experience injustice. Look, you know, if there are adequate avenues, legal avenues for us to seek out justice or to, you know, to change, to make change, to vote people out of office, to vote people in, to change structures, then do all of that. That's great. But if there's not, then we need to remember that even our salvation came in the context of the greatest injustice. And it's one, an injustice that our Savior willingly bore for our sake. And we are called to follow in His example. To not to seek personal vengeance, 
personal retaliation, to go get what's ours because someone wronged us. And so Peter teaches us tonight to let go of any dreams of personal vengeance against those who have done us wrong. Especially those who have more authority or power over us. And so if we have those avenues to go go change our situation or the situation of others to help the oppressed and the weak, then let's go do that. But even in situations where, where we are unable to change things, As believers, we are called to do good even while we suffer because we are mindful of God, mindful of Christ and the cross that he bore for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even if we find ourselves stuck in injustice that we cannot change, if we find ourselves in, in, in stuck in oppressive moments and structures that we just can't escape, that we can't, we don't have to despair, that we don't have to we don't have to declare that all is lost, but that we actually even have a Savior who identifies with us and brings dignity and hope to our sufferings, who reminds us that He suffered too. And that he suffered the greatest injustice. That he was murdered in his pure innocence. And that it was for our sake. And Lord, we pray that that would give us hope in whatever we are experiencing. Father, that it would put out any ideas of personal vengeance or personal retaliation or excuses and justifications to sin against those who have wronged us. But rather, Lord, may we be moved to pray for our enemies, to do good to them. Lord, that you may keep burning coals on their head and that you may drive their conscience to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That they may know the same cleansing and saving power of his cross that saved us. For we are sinners saved by the grace of God. And Lord, may we not forget that when we suffer unjustly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.